and welcome to Hoop Theory. My name is Logan Wortman. Thank you if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or any other podcast platform. And thank you as well if you're watching the video version of this episode on YouTube. Please consider leaving a like, subscribing, following the feed. This is the Chris Weber episode of the Hoop Theory podcast. Chris Weber was the first number four that popped into my head, so I'm just going to roll with it. So this is the Southeast Division episode. I've been putting off this episode for a while. You know, I was in a really good place after I finished the last episode to just basically start working on this one. But it's really hard to motivate myself to, I guess, get started on everything. Just because, just looking at the Southeast Division, I just didn't really have much to say about all these teams. I really just was not enthusiastic about you know, any sort of takes or any sort of like thoughts I have on them for the most part. There's just like a couple little tidbits for each one. Um, that's changed a little bit now It's because it's been a while, but, but for the most part, this is definitely my least watched division in the NBA for me personally. I've spent the least amount of time watching this division out of all of them. And for those that don't know, the Southeast division is the Atlanta Hawks, Charlotte Hornets, Miami Heat, Orlando Magic, and the Washington Wizards. So yeah, just like the first several episodes um, of this series, if you haven't seen those, the format that I'm doing this in is I'm showing you footage of me and my two friends Jacob Roth of the Jacob Roth show and Anthony Levsenuk on a discord call right before the season started I believe it was like a week before this season started going through and making our over under picks for each NBA team this season and also like placing them in a tier list kind of at the same time so we did really rapid fire on it because we didn't have a lot of time but I'm just going through by division every episode so this episode I'll just show you the footage of us talking about the southeast division teams and making our picks for those just so you can see what our thoughts were before the season and then right after that you'll see me again in this chair wearing this shirt um, which all this stuff is new by the way you know post christmas new headset new chair new lights uh hopefully it's a lot brighter now sorry my dogs are playing in the background you could probably hear them growling but yeah after that clip you'll see me come back i'll provide additional updated thoughts um on how their season's going each of these teams you know and see how our picks hold up and stuff like that so yeah without further ado i'll let you guys get into what jacob anthony and i recorded before the season enjoy Starting off with the Atlanta Hawks. Their over-under line is 46 and a half wins. Now moving on to the Southeast Division. First, we got the Atlanta Hawks, who shocked the world last year, except for Jacob. Um, oh, give it to me. I want to start this one off. I'm going to go a lock on the over. Ooh. Jacob the reason is... All three of his locks now. Absolutely. The reason is, I think that this team is the deepest team of... Like starting low, it's like it's like if the Lakers or the Clippers like three years ago when they was like Lou Will and they were a bunch of like dogs that were the eighth seed had a superstar at the front of the team because like you can name nine guys that you'd be okay starting on a lot of NBA teams on this this Hawks team and I don't need to go into it too depth into into too much depth but I'm gonna lock the over I think they're gonna be a surprise like team and I also have them in the A tier I'm going over and uh, B tier uh, I hate I hate them but you know they're a good team. They honestly look even better this year. Cam Reddish is back and he's fully healthy for this season. Sharif Cooper looks like a good bench piece and he's really linking well with their, um, the starting pieces. You know, he you can bring him on, have him, you know, one-two with Collins. You know, they've looked like a really good pair, pick and roll. And it's a good team. It's a good team. I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm scared this season as well because I feel like we're going to play them again this playoff, like in, in these playoffs. I think we're going to match up. I yeah. feel like it's bound to happen just the 
curse of the Sixers, you know? So we'll see. Yeah, man. So I, I'm going to join you guys with the over. I agree with all the stuff you guys just said. I think they are a better team this year. The only difference is I think that the rest of the East is going to be a little bit better as well. So I don't know if they'll make the same kind of run they did last year, but I definitely, uh, they're on the radar for being one of those teams. And I'm going to put them in the B tier. So do you have them above the Sixers in the B tier? Or is it just um, not in order? I like to, I, yeah, it's not really in order, but I kind of like the Sixers gotcha. a little bit lower in it. Really? Yeah. Okay. That's just fair. because That's I, fair. I'm, le- I'm less confident. We like the haters. I'm less confident in the Sixers. I'm going to say it like that. I don't like their coach. I don't like their whole situation with Ben Simmons. Um, I don't like their star players' durability. I don't like all those things. So can they be a championship team? Fuel Maybe. the fire. But Fuel the fire. I don't know. Up next is the Charlotte Hornets. Their over-under line is 37 and a half wins. All right, so our next team is Charlotte. And for me... I'm putting Charlotte on the over just because 37 and a half is really, I, f- I thought when I saw that line, it was a little low for them. I thought they'd be more around the Knicks. I'm going to use the over, not lock it or anything like that. I'm not going to be a madman because I think this is really, you know, choosing the over is kind of guaranteeing that Gordon Hayward's going to be playing, you know, at least 65-ish games because of how important he is to that team and how many injuries he's had recently. So I'm, I'm just going to choose the over because I feel good about it. Um, but not that good about it, I guess. So, and I'm going to put them in the same tier as the Knicks, the D tier. Uh, I'm going to use my stay away on this one because I think they could be a good team, but somebody has to lose basketball games in the East. It just, somebody has to, and they're a younger team. And I think Lamel will sneak them a lot of wins and get them a lot of wins, but it just, everything else around them. I'm not sure they lost Malik Monk, which I think is going to hurt a lot more. I think that they did go get book night, but I don't know if that's the same level. So um, I'm going to take just a stay away just because I could see both sides happening over and under of that, that 37 and a half. So uh, stay away and I'll put them in the D tier. Sounds good. So Jacob used his, is that your, your second stay away? Second. Yeah. And it's your first team in the D tier. Wow. This one, this one's kind of tough, you know, mm-hmm. but uh, I think I'm going to go under. I think they are slightly overrated just because they have LaMelo Ball, who I think is a fantastic player, but I don't think he is ready to be, you know, at the top and kind of deal, be one of the leaders for that team. You know what I'm saying? So I, I just don't think it's this is the year for them. I do like Book Knight a lot, but I'm going to I'm gonna use my under on him and uh, go yeah. um, E-tier. E-tier. Wow. Above, uh, above the Raptors. Above the Raptors. Okay. Yeah. So I think that they're a good choice for an over personally, just because last year uh, they were actually on a 48 win pace when uh, Gordon Hayward got injured. And mm-hmm. then they lost. I think they went eight and 16 to finish out the, the rest of the regular season. And they still were in the plan. So if Gordon Hayward's healthy, Lamelo's taking another step up. They saw Terry Rogier. I don't think they lost much, much with Devontae Graham. So I'm going to take the over. I feel good about it. The next team is the Miami Heat. Their over-under line was 48 and a half wins. Miami. Uh, Let's start with Anthony on Miami. I am going the over. I mean, dude, that that trio of Lowry, Butler, and Bam Adebayo is going to be good. It's just such a good combination of players. I think Butler will dominate. Lowry is just, they finally have a, a... point guard you know who will you can lead that team and then bam is 
is probably going to take another step up. You know, he's just getting better and better as a center and as a player overall. So I'm, I'm also going to put him in the A tier. A tier. All right. So Anthony is on board with the Heat. That was a little bit disrespectful what you just said about Goran Dragic just there, but I'll let yeah. it slide, I guess. Um, I think Lowry would be a better fit, though, you for said that team. He, they find, you said they finally have a point guard. That is disrespectful, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right, you're right. Uh, Jacob, uh, what about you with the Heat? Under. The only way I see them getting this over is if Victor Oladipo comes back and looks pretty solid, which I hope he does. I hope this team... There's just too many teams that, like, sneak up on you, and the one thing the Heat couldn't do last year was stay consistent. I get they've got Kyle Lowry now, but guess what? He takes charges, and he's old. He's been in the league a long time. He's a, what, 34, 35? Yeah, I think around there, 34. He's the only guy that takes more charges than Marcus Smart. Like, I, I, not, I'm just worried about this team long because they're going to have to sit him to make sure he's 100% for the playoffs. So I could see them just saying, let's make the playoffs and we'll do what we do in the playoffs from there. Because I just, yeah, I'm not. How many games did uh, Jimmy miss last year, though? Didn't he miss a large portion of the first first half of the season? First part of the season, I think, yeah. He but even when he did play, they were super inconsistent. That's true, but they did go on a And on does a Kyle Lowry elevate their offense, which is what they were so bad at? Is Tyler Hero finally gaining unreasonable confidence again? Going to drag their offense out of the dumps? Because the only thing they did was play pretty solid defense and really spotty, inconsistent offense. So anyway, can't spend too much time on teams because we got to keep moving. So I'm not super high on the Heat. I've got them. I still think they're a B-tier team. I think they are like just out of the play-in or in the play-in. So that's my, so I'm under, B, and that's why. So that's B tier for you, is yeah. them being in the plan? Like, I think they won't make the plan, but I would not be surprised if they make the plan. You're saying, so you think they'll be above it, but they'll be close to getting into the plan? Or you think they're going to be or, yeah. the plan? No. Okay, they'll make so the playoffs or the plan. One of the two, so like yeah. Six, six, seven range, not... Not Six, 10, seven, 11. or eight-ish. Yes, okay, not gotcha. 10, 11. I'm, I'm not that off the heat. Sorry if that was okay. confusing. <laughs> gotcha. And so I also have B tier, but I think my B tier is a little bit... I don't know. I think though I see them more in like the... Maybe even as high as the three seed in the East, but I'd say where I feel most comfortable is like five, six. So it's not too far off. I'm a little bit higher on them than Jacob is, is I think, but not a whole lot. Um, just because, yeah, they've been really inconsistent with injuries and stuff like that the past couple of years. I'm going to put them a slight under, but I wouldn't be surprised, I guess, if they got to, you know, 49, 50 wins. Uh, wouldn't be mm -hmm. surprised at all. Kyle Lowry's getting a little bit older. Jimmy Butler might be losing yeah. step, although he had a great season last year. And he also, when he did play, I think he was one of the most, like, biggest difference makers in terms of wins and losses when he played versus when he didn't in the entire league. So... Next is the Orlando Magic. Their over-underline was 22 and a half wins. Orlando though, let's move on to them. I'll start with Orlando. I'm gonna choose, honestly 22 wins or 23 wins is really low, but I still- That's a really good number. Under. Yeah. That's a really good number by the people that get paid to pick over and under numbers. That's a really good number. Cause it's like, yeah. it's hard to not win 20 games. Like it happens, but like- Not a lot. Yeah. Maybe an average of like one and a half per season, I would say. I'd agree like, with that, where it's like there's one team that's mm -hmm. just so booty. Anthony's watched a lot of those teams, weirdly enough, in the past decade. But so you you chose the under two, Jacob? 
Um, I did, but I'm like, it's a hard number. It's like a slight yeah. either way. Like if this mean, I think it's like if I could pick a range, it's 22 to 24, which is the under, like splitting the difference in the over. Like it's yeah, yeah. yeah. I just think their their roster is so garbage that I would choose. I would do this in a heartbeat if it weren't for Jalen Suggs. To be honest, with how oh much no, I, I feel like he can do for a team regardless of how like the talent is, catch some good teams on an off night type of thing, but. I don't know. I see Mo Bamba like... in the preseason. That's true. Mo Bamba's he, a been force. Yeah. Um, under. In, F. In F. Yeah, everybody yeah, puts him in F. And everybody chose the under. Wow. All right. It's a hard I... under, though. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. The last team in the Southeast Division is the Washington Wizards. Their over-underline was 34 and a half wins. And then next one, we got Washington. I chose the under on this as well which it was also very hard for me because I could, they're very, you know, big variants though. I could see them doing a little bit better than this. I could see them doing a lot worse if Bradley Beal's situation gets, you know, worse as the season goes along. So, um, and I'm going to put them in the E tier, I believe is where I have them. Um, no, I actually have them in D tier. I think that's mainly just because of their ceiling though, is what I was thinking on that. Cause they do have a, they do have a d decent roster, you know? So moving on to Anthony. What do you think? I'm taking the under as well, along with you. It's just, a, it's a spotty team. And I feel like it won't be consistent. And, uh, you know, if Bradley Bill does end up getting traded, which is a possibility, they'll probably be a worse team. So, um, but we'll see with them. But I, I have them E uh, along with uh, the Hornets. I don't think they're going to be a good team, but I think they do have a lot of talent for them to be good, you know, but we'll see as the season goes on. Yep. Jacob. And I took the under uh, just because somebody has to lose. I think it's a really good number because um, I think Spencer Dinwiddie could do some things with this team. Uh, Brad Beal's there, Kyle Kuzma, KCP. They've got a lot of pieces that I think could work out. Don't forget my boy Davis, uh, Bertans. And so mm -hmm. I'm just kidding. You can forget about him. He's not going to do anything. But um, so I've got them in D tier just because like, because I think that they could be a team that's like, hey, be scared. We're the 10 seed. But I don't think it'll happen. Um, and it also all hinges on where Brad Beal's at. So yeah i think they're kind of like a great value version of the hawks every person on the roster could fill a roster spot on like any team in the nba like you feel pretty good about them but they're yeah. they just don't have a lot of mm -hmm. top end you know yeah so all right so those were our picks for the southeast division now just to provide some additional thoughts starting with the atlanta hawks i don't know if i said in the intro but today is january 13th so at this current point in time the atlanta hawks are on a 35 win pace multiplying their win percentage right now by 82 games and come out to about 35 wins and their over under number was 46 and a half so they are not looking too hot in reaching that number one second i'm gonna pick up one of my dogs because they are being too rowdy let's take your noisy collar off too all right sorry about that so atlanta is definitely not on pace to hit their over but you know i guess anything could happen they had a similar start to last season they were like 14 and 20 i believe before they fired Lloyd Pierce, uh, their former head coach, and replaced him with Nate McMillan, who's their current head coach. And they had a huge turnaround after that. So I don't know, maybe something similar could happen, not necessarily changing, you know, of the coaches again. I don't know if that would be a wise decision or not, but they're definitely struggling this season, only being 17 and 23, which is the 12 spot in the Eastern Conference. So they're not even in the plan. 
if the season were to end today and you know the main issue with them has been their defense you know they've been a really good offensive team this season but they also have been like one of the worst defenses in the league which is understandable when you're building around a guy like trey young who's just one of the biggest negatives as far as starting point guards in the league on the defensive end but the reason they were able to make that work last year is because clint capella around the rim was one of the best defenders in the league this year i don't i don't know what's happened i haven't been able to catch a lot of hawks games to really break down capella's game with the eye test his defensive metrics are way way down this year um there's lots of talk around the hawks about how he's you know just falling apart defensively i'm not sure if there's any reasons for that that people know of like maybe some sort of injury or you know change in scheme i'm not sure it's just odd because this this is the same exact team they had last year for the most part um as far as their core guys it's probably one of the most carried over rosters from last year to this year but they're having very different problems this year it seems like or at least their issues are much more amplified and honestly i think one difference from last year to this year that they've had is their guys are more healthy this year which is kind of funny because if you guys remember any of my commentary of the Hawks last season, it kind of went like this. So at, at the very beginning of the season, I was not high on them. Um, I was lower on them than consensus. Most people probably had them around like seven to nine range in the East, seven to nine seed. I think Jacob, he was seeing them as high as like the the fourth or fifth seed as you know where they did end up um, ultimately. You know, I was a lot lower on them than Jacob was. I saw them more at like the 10, 11 range, honestly, like borderline making the play in, you know, kind of in competition with the Hornets and the Wizards, I believe is who I kind of, you know, was going back and forth with them on, maybe the Knicks as well. So the reason I wasn't as high on them as others is because I just really didn't like their signings stylistically, um, as far as like fit and roster construction. I thought that what they were drafting around Trey was pretty decent. Um, I guess I'll just like take you through the moves. So this is just right off the top of my head, but you know, after they, they got Trey, all the moves that they made after Trey to build around him, they got DeAndre Hunter and Cam Reddish in the same draft that that next year uh the year after they got trey so two you know big three and d wings i liked both those moves a lot they already had john collins on the roster um and he right away showed to be a really good pick and roll partner with trey young so i liked him there but then they they went and got clint capella a couple seasons ago um mid-season trade which i don't know i thought was good from the standpoint of you're getting a rim protector and you're also you know having another really good lob threat to pair with trey young in the pick and roll but i didn't like it from the standpoint of wanting to keep john collins in the fold long term um so i thought moving off of john collins or not necessarily moving off but not extending him um past his rookie deal or signing trading him on that extension something along those lines which didn't end up happening they just actually did end up extending him and keeping him uh, for a lot of money yeah i didn't like that move at the time because i saw too much like skill overlap between collins and capella offensively for this modern nba at the time collins was not a reliable you know shooter from the outside he wasn't a good defender on the perimeter uh and he was you know optimized by being a pick and roll partner with a ball handler and initiator like trey young um, which is also the only thing you want clint capella doing offensively so yeah i just didn't love the fit there and those are both guys you're going to be paying a lot of money and wanting to play starting level minutes but john collins has definitely been uh you know a big surprise to me in that regard because he's improved a lot i think that was one of the biggest keys to them having better success than i was anticipating john collins extending his shooting range out to the three-point line especially pretty reliable in those corners became much more skilled off the dribble being a guy who can you know put it on the floor take a few dribbles and you know finish in the mid-range um, or even attack a closeout he's athletic enough to attack the rotating defense and get to the rim so he really just became much more 
more valuable off ball, was able to, you know, serve as a piece on the floor alongside that pick and roll sequence without being the actual roll man and really, you know, optimize the spacing out there. He also got a lot better defending on the perimeter, defending wings mainly for the most part, instead of having to defend the slow-footed guys, the guys that aren't going to be moving too much on the perimeter and going to be in, in the interior more so. He improved in that regard as well to fit alongside Capella more ideally defensively. Just huge credit to John Collins to transforming his game to fit the system and become a overall just more valuable player because he still has those great role man skills, you know, the unbelievable leaping ability and ability to finish on the rim in the air. So he becomes even more handy with like minutes when Capella's not on the court, uh, still having role man, you know, a lob threat out there on the court uh, alongside Trey Young in a pick and roll, or if not Trey Young, somebody running the show in the second unit like uh, Lou Williams or Bogdan Bogdanovich, Kevin Herter, so they can still have that rim pressure on the court at all times, you know, and also extremely valuable for when uh, Clint Capella is out of the lineup for some reason, especially in this weird COVID season. So yeah, props to John Collins. And then in the offseason leading up to last season, uh, more moves that I didn't like, just coming back to that. They drafted Okongwu with the sixth overall pick in that draft, um, Onyeka Okongwu from USC, who's another like lob threat big man you know, offensively, that's probably what he's going to be doing. Either that or like in the dunker spot, he doesn't have a lot of shooting ability quite yet, at least. He's more of a defensive piece than an offensive piece, but for an offensive role, you probably want him to be a role man. And also back then at that point during that draft last year, you know, John Collins had been showing flashes of having other skills offensively as far as like the shooting ability and scoring in isolation and stuff like that, that he was showing at the end of that previous season. But it just wasn't like to the point where it was like, okay, this is real. You know, this is going to be a real role for him that he can play. So at that point, I still saw John Collins and Clint Capella as a clashy fit. Um, and then so then drafting with the sixth overall pick, another guy that would fit that same kind of role. And both the guys you already have in that role are guys that are younger, that fit your timeline, and you're locked up with them pretty long term as far as contracts go. So I didn't love that pick. But, you know, again, with John Collins transforming into the player that he is, I think Okongwu fits fine as kind of like, you know, a, a backup option of that role. And so then beyond that, once they already have like this young core put in place, you know, Trey Young, Kevin Herter. I forgot to mention Kevin Herter before as far as team building went, but, you know, didn't love him either as like a backcourt mate to Trey as far as defense goes. But, you know, another reliable shooter off ball and can be a secondary playmaker type of guy. So Trey Young, Kevin Herter, DeAndre Hunter. Cam Reddish, John Collins, and Clint Capella. I thought they had a pretty decent, like, young core that they should try to develop and, you know, see flourish, I guess. But then they kind of, at the beginning of last season, or in the offseason last season, kind of went all in, put all their chips in the middle, basically, you know, tried to, I think probably because of the big narrative of, like, a lot of people on NBA TV and uh, the jump and, like, former players, their commentary on the Hawks was like, oh, Trey Young, he's not a winning player yet. He's putting up empty stats because he's on a bad team, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it's a young rebuilding team. Just give it time, is was my opinion. But, you know, Trey Young was just entering his third year in the league and they're already deciding to go all in and spend the offseason buying, try to make a playoff push, which it worked. It did work as far as, like, getting pretty far into the playoffs they made it into the eastern conference finals so i guess props to them but i didn't see that happening number one because like it's it's one thing to go all in and try to buy i just didn't see the vision of what they were buying like they went and got bogdan bogdanovich so you know a guy that's making 18 to 20 mil a year and then they also signed danilo gallinari for like 20 mil a year 
both those guys not pluses defensively. Again, you're trying to build a core around a huge defensive liability in Trey Young. So I didn't like that as the vision. You know, Bogdanovich is like average defensively, I might say, but uh, Danilo Gallinari, not a guy that is going to be adding any value on the defensive end. So they basically just went all in on surrounding the Trey Young and Clint Capella pick and roll with shooters, which sounds like a potent offense. And it turned out to be a very, very potent offense, especially with the way Trey Young kind of developed and navigated as his skill set, you know, changed. You know, he was able to become much more inclusive, a lot less heliocentric. Before, he was much more of like a just on-ball creator all the time. Once it leaves his hands, he's not really serving the offense. He changed that quite a bit and was able to get other guys involved and play off their actions and all that kind of stuff. He reminded me a lot more of like a Steve Nash kind of role um, rather than a James Harden, which is what I saw him as before. But anyways, on top of them signing those guys that aren't helping you defensively, aren't fitting along Trey in the best way from a defensive standpoint, they also are guys that are going to be taking minutes away from those guys that you just drafted and you're just going to have to decide whether you're going to keep them long term, like Cam Reddish, like Onyeka Okongwu, like DeAndre Hunter, and even John Collins to an extent because signing Gallinari. Both those guys are going to require to be on the floor quite a bit with how much you're paying them and what you want them to be as far as a role on your team. But like they don't fit on the floor together very well. Like If you're going to have both of them on the floor, you're probably going small with Collins as, as the center which again, also isn't great defensively. So yeah, but John Collins, you know, improved enough to be a good defender on the perimeter. And last year, really what held that together was Clint Capella being so dominant at the rim on defense that it just, it just kind of made up for it. Yeah. And then they also, they also signed Rondo and Chris Dunn. So two defensive guards, which I actually liked the idea of because I thought it'd be good to pair one of those guys with Trey Young for some minutes in the backcourt. But then it was just weird. It was funky because they had too many players when I looked at the roster where it was like, like all, all the guys that they were paying a lot of money were guys that weren't going to fit alongside Trey Young defensively at all. They're just like kind of just piling on the same skill set that they have all over their roster, which is lots of shooting and scoring ability. And then all of those guys that I thought they got at pretty good value, pretty good, you know, smaller contracts like Rondo and Chris Dunn, um, and maybe a few others. I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, I think Solomon Hill was another one. Those guys are very defensive oriented. And it was just like looking at this roster, you got the really high paid offensive players. You've got the young guys who theoretically you want to turn into defenders they have that defensive potential and those raw skills and they have those raw tools to become that but young guys in the nba in their first couple seasons are usually not very great defensively even if they're a defensive prospect and you you're not going to want to take the minutes away from those guys you don't you want to continue to develop them as you're a a, you're a rebuilding team that just kind of skipped a few steps and you know bought a bunch of players in the offseason so then those defensive guys that were added to the roster those additions that they had weren't really in the fold at all they were you know just reserves so you know those signings to get those defensive guys just didn't really end up doing anything when i was looking at the roster preseason because i was like these guys are going to be buried in the rotation you know it's either that they're going to be playing those guys over the the young guys cam reddish and deandre hunter which i also think is a mistake because I'm very pro like player development. I think it's a mistake when you bury your young players like that when you're at that stage of a of a team building process because those guys you bought in the offseason, Bogdanovich and Gallo, they don't fit your process long term. They don't fit your team vision long term because they're not young like those other guys and they're not young like your core, like Trey Young and John Collins. So I don't know. Just from a roster building standpoint, I thought it was kind of clunky 
and Messi. And I didn't at that point I didn't see Trey Young as a guy who's going to carry a team into the postseason as like the focal point, you know? Because I kind of saw him a little bit too as like empty stats type of guy. Like I thought he would develop into a better player as years gone along, but he kind of made that jump really quick in year three, uh, which I wasn't expecting. So did the Hawks surprise me? Yeah, they did a lot better than I thought they would. Um, you know, because I am giving them credit where credit is due. They were able to, especially with Nate McMillan as as the head coach, they're able to fit Bogdanovich into their system really well um, and make that all kind of gel. And you know, like I said, Trey Young and John Collins making the improvements that they did to their games, and Clint Capella being you know a guy defensively that made up for all of their shortcomings. You know, all those things combined is why they they did a lot better in the regular season. But another thing I think that helped was honestly the fact that they faced so many injuries during the regular season they had a lot of guys in and out so they had time to kind of see what different guys looked like in different roles and and play around with the rotations and all that kind of stuff because they were they were forced to and they didn't have that sort of issue that some teams honestly do have of like the too many guys issue but they were able to navigate that pretty well because they had to with a lot of people being in and out so yeah and then once they got to the playoffs I, i'll give them this i think they they surprised me enough to like they deserve to win that first series against the Knicks probably even if you played it over and did things differently like I, I think they probably would win that series more often than not after that they should not have won the series against the Sixers no, like I know it was a cool story that the Hawks made it as far as they did and played the Bucks really well in the next round as well but they that's not where they should have been they kind of made that step too early uh, honestly their situation and circumstances I thought were just very lucky honestly even at like during the time as it was going on um and that i don't want that to be perceived as like a i'm trying to knock the hawks or something i'm just trying to explain like how this team is is constructed it probably should have gone a little differently i'll just go into it right here i, I was planning on making a video uh, eventually called making sense of the 2021 atlanta hawks I was planning on doing that with Jacob as well. Yeah, I'll just go into it right now because I think it's pertinent to the conversation that I'm having with myself. So to best explain this though, I'll start off with like what playoff basketball in the NBA oftentimes boils down to is exploiting weaknesses, is like zeroing in and magnifying what would be considered minor weaknesses on the opposing team during the regular season. In the postseason, they're turned into much bigger, more glaring, more negative weaknesses because like playoff basketball really boils down to formulating a game plan formulating a scheme that exposes your opposition's weaknesses and capitalizes on them like for example just last season in the um mavs clippers series the first move was made with uh luka Doncic and rick carlisle and the mavs you know they made the game plan of hey you guys are going to play this traditional center in avita zubats um you know seven foot slow footed you know traditional center like i said as well as like uh pat beverly you know a small point guard um you're gonna have these guys out on the court have like a traditional lineup well luka Doncic is just going to every single play get a switch onto one of those guys and take advantage zubats being too slow he can either you know drive around him get to the cup or you know create a shot in space where zubats can't keep up with him and with pat beverly we saw it numerous times he would just put him under the basket uh just take him to the rim you know slowly back him down all the way till he's under the basket and score on him so they just kept going to that repeatedly because of how efficient luca is at those kinds of scenarios taking advantage of those kinds of mismatches and so then Ty Lue head coach of the Clippers he countered that move 
with changing his rotations to not playing Pat Beverly or Avita Zubats very much at all. And they played basically five out, five switchable wings the entire time. So they basically had either Nick Batum or Marcus Morris as the center and, you know, had Kawhi Paul George out there and then Terrence Mann as the smallest guy on the court at like 6'5", you know? So they just had a five wing lineup out there that could all switch and defend across positions. And that really was the key to them beating the Mavs was like, no matter who Luka gets switched onto, it's going to be a pretty capable defender. You're not going to make him stop scoring because he's so like ridiculously good at scoring against even the best of the defenders, but you'll slow him down enough to the point where you can overcome that huge variable. And that's ultimately what happened. So explaining that example, it's just showing like neither of those teams did the things that brought them success throughout the regular season. All that stuff kind of went out the window for the most part because you're facing a specific matchup now. You, you're trying to you're not trying to beat every team in the NBA right now. You're trying to beat that specific matchup and make it to the next round. And so it's all about making adjustments and refining your game plan. Coaches that I feel like don't do this are oftentimes like the best regular season coaches because they have such an em emphasis on refining a game plan in terms of creating the best overall system that works every night. Like, you know, it works against every team for the most part. It's like very consistent, very like black and white. Like we do this this way every time. The way those coaches, I think, probably view basketball is they view it they view it as like a big sample. You know, they're like more often than not, this is the way to do things. So they have like a philosophy of like, this is the way I do it, which brings them success in the regular season a lot because just in a huge sample, they're going to win a lot more games than they lose um, for the most part. But those same coaches a lot of times in the playoffs are so married to their ideas and their philosophies that they don't make adjustments and you know change their game plan based on their personnel or like the opposing team's personnel or the opposing team's game plan or like you know, things like that capitalize on on advantages that you can in this specific scenario. Like it shouldn't be like you're playing every other team because this is a unique matchup. It's a unique team that has its un unique players and skill sets and, and ins and outs to their system that you can try to combat. And like literally the top three coaches in the NBA right now that ha are, are employed right now as head coaches and that have been the past several seasons like if you were to ask me even before that playoff run with atlanta who are the top three coaches that you would put into that category the category of really good regular season coach but frustrates me a lot watching them in the playoffs because they hardly ever make adjustments and they they usually get knocked out earlier than they should and i i honestly believe the three names i would give you would be in no particular order tom thibodeau uh mike budenholzer and doc rivers and those are literally the only three coaches that the Atlanta Hawks played in the playoffs last year. As I saw the Hawks might be beating the Sixers in the second round, I was like, okay, what if the Bucks pull this off against Brooklyn, make it to the conference finals? And then the Hawks are facing the Bucks in the conference finals and facing again another coach that isn't going to take advantage of their weakness, their very glaring huge weakness. And then they're gonna make it to the finals. What if the Atlanta Hawks make it to the NBA finals? 
I was getting kind of scared at that point. Like I remember me and some friends were watching that Sixers game seven, Sixers and Atlanta game seven. And like after the game or, you know, whenever it became apparent that the Hawks were going to win, like one of my friends said something like, what if the Hawks make it to the finals or what if the Hawks win the finals or something like that? And I was like, honestly, I might stop caring about basketball if that happens. And I remember like the reaction from all my friends was like, well, that's dumb. Why would, like, why would you do that? Why aren't you rooting for them? You know, it's an underdog story type thing. Like, uh, wouldn't it be cool to see them make it to the finals? Just everything I believe about basketball, I was just... I was getting mad at how easy the Hawks were getting like getting off the hook for for something that should cost them winning in a playoff series like good teams in the playoffs lose all the time they get knocked out early all the time because of a weakness like think about the Utah Jazz and they, I'd say their weakness is even less glaring than than the Hawks it's just they've gone up against a lot more coaches that have game planned and taken advantage of their weaknesses like Ty Lu did last year in in the playoffs uh, with the Clippers Ty Lu is one of those coaches that I really enjoy as a playoff coach because he makes a lot of like he makes a lot of adjustments he's willing to try like anything which I just appreciate I think it just makes the playoffs way more entertaining I just like it as a coaching philosophy you know Utah Jazz their big weakness is Really, the fact that they are so one-dimensional in their strength. I think I've gone over this in an episode before on this channel. Like, Rudy Gobert, one of the best shot blockers in NBA history. They have their entire defense built around him. It's kind of like a heliocentric thing, like how Luka is offensively or LeBron is offensively, but it's on the defensive end, and it's Gobert being a shot blocker at the rim. So how they play defense is everybody on the perimeter just plays up really tight to their defensive assignment. So they don't allow any threes. They stay very tight up to shooters, don't give them any breathing room, and they funnel the offense into the paint. So they're they're giving them a driving lane. It's like they'll stay up on their shot, not allow them to shoot, force them to drive into the paint where they're gonna be met by Rudy Gobert with an eight foot wingspan, ready to block their shot. And Gobert is so efficient at rim protection that it's a very, very effective defense. Some people call him a walking top 10 defense because the numbers have shown throughout his career so far that Rudy Gobert on the court with anyone else is a top 10 defense in the NBA. But in a playoff setting, how Ty Lue decided to pick this apart and try to exploit it was, I, I just love this. I, I wanna know, I just wanna be a fly on the wall in those meetings, in those coaching meetings to see who came up with this idea first and how, you know, just how it came about because it, it's just a great idea. Like, and it just, things like this is what makes me love basketball. But it was like, okay, so what makes Utah such a different and weird, unique defense is all of their defenders on the perimeter, they don't need to be good defenders. They're not even used to being good defenders. Like they don't play defense the way every other perimeter defender in the NBA plays defense. All they care about is staying up against shooters, not allowing them to shoot and allowing them to drive past them. Like that's their, that's their mode of operation is like they're allowing blow buys. Like that's the desired outcome, which if in every other case in the NBA, other than teams that have kind of copied this formula with a rim protector as like the soul of the defense, like the Hawks, that's what I'm trying to, trying to get at. You can exploit that by going five out like the Clippers did. So just like how Zubats became kind of less playable in the Maverick series, he became even less playable really in the Utah series because they just went five out again like they did against the Mavs where they just had only shooters on the court. So all five positions are shooters. So that means Rudy Gobert is forced to guard a shooter. So either either there's going to be one of your five guys on the floor wide open every play because Gobert is parked in the paint or Gobert is going to be stretched out on that guy on the perimeter. 
So if the guy that Gobert is guarding is talented enough, he could pretty reliably maybe get by him on the perimeter and make it to the cup where there'll be nobody waiting for him at the rim because there's no rim protectors on their team other than Gobert. You know, that'd be kind of a dumb thing for Quinn Snyder and the and the Utah Jazz to do uh, is to put Gobert on a guy who could beat him on the perimeter. So you want to put him on a slower guy, maybe like a Marcus Morris or something like that, or a Nick Batum. So then what would happen is they would put that guy, whoever Gobert's guarding in a corner, and they'd have the offensive sequence be on the opposite side of the court. So start at the opposite wing of that corner. So Gobert's guy is stretching him as far away from the play as possible. And so then they'll, you know, run some kind of action, like a pick and roll, like something to get downhill, which is very easy because they're going against number one, not good perimeter defenders, because that's how they built their roster was we don't need good perimeter defenders. We have Gobert at the rim. And also in the case of like Royce O'Neal, who's actually one of their few pretty good uh, perimeter defenders, the way that their mind is trained throughout the entire regular season is to allow blowbys and to stay up on shooters. So in just this like one case scenario where they have to change their entire like mode of operating defensively, like it's probably a very hard mental hurdle to to leap. So it's going to be really easy for Paul George, for Terrence Mann, for Kawhi, uh, for you know any of those guys to get get by those perimeter defenders and get to the rim. And so if if Gobert rotates over on the backside to help at the rim, then that leaves Batum or Morris or whoever wide open in the corner for three, which is the most valuable shot in all of basketball. And both those guys are very capable at knocking down that shot at a respectable clip. And so even after Kawhi went down in that series, that's why the Clippers were able to pull out that series so easily is because they broke the Gobert system. So how this applies to Atlanta, uh, especially in that Sixers series, having Embiid out there as a really capable three-point shooter at the at the center position, you could have stretched Capella out. Obviously, you're not going to really go five out with that lineup because of Ben Simmons, but if you know if you put Capella on Ben Simmons, then then he might be able to drive at him from the perimeter. Anyways, probably wouldn't work the same way uh, because the Sixers makeup is just very different roster wise than the Clippers. The main thing I'm trying to get at is punishing Trey Young defensively, being such an undersized guard with not great defensive awareness or really any positive qualities on the defensive end. They should have been able to take advantage of that much more than they they did, which is I believe zero. Uh, like they never ran plays to get a get a switch onto Trey Young. Like you know, just have Ben Simmons get a switch onto Trey Young, post him up, get to the basket, or Tobias Harris, or really anybody. What makes it even worse is at a certain point in that series when I, we were watching it at at the bar and grill, like I was talking about with my friends, uh, I noticed for a stretch that they had on the floor in a game seven in the playoffs, they had Trey Young, Lou Williams and Danilo Gallinari all in the court at the same time. Doc Rivers, head coach of the Sixers, has literally coached both Lou Williams and Danilo Gallinari in the playoffs before. He knows how bad of like defensive liabilities they are. He's the, like Lou Williams is the reason, half the reason, that Doc Rivers got fired from the Clippers is because in that Nugget series a couple years ago between the Clippers and the, and the Nuggets, Lou Williams and Montrez Harrell were big defensive liabilities and the Nuggets were relentlessly hunting them uh, defensively. And Doc Rivers, it was reported that uh, all the statisticians, all like the analytics department with the Clippers and everything like that, all those coaches that were looking at that were coming to Doc Rivers and saying, the numbers with Lou Williams and Harrell on the court are atrocious. We need to stop playing them or like at least play them less. We need to adjust, you know? And Doc Rivers was like, no, I'm going to stay with my guys. I know what the, those guys are capable of, like blah, blah, blah. And so he refused to make any adjustments and they lost a 3-1 lead after that point. And that's why he got fired. Now he's facing literally both Trey Young and Dilla Gallinari, another very bad defensive player. Like 
one of the slowest people in basketball. And he's not a rim protector. He's somebody who's going to be dead meat in a playoff series, defensively speaking, especially if the other guys on the court aren't good defenders either with Trey Young and Lou Williams. And then I think like Bogdanovich was like the other wing or something, you know, like a, a very average defender. And then Clint Capella was the guy holding up the interior. But like what? I don't know. Especially in the Bucks series, they could have hunted that mismatch with Trey Young even more. They didn't do so. They outplayed them despite that, despite not taking advantage of that, just because they were the vastly superior team. But then also it really helped that Trey Young got injured late in that series. You know, it was a six game series and Trey Young got injured in game five, something like that. So that helped too. You know, their offense wasn't near as potent after that. And the Bucks are already, were already, you know, one of the greatest defensive teams in the league. But yeah, it just, it's mind boggling to like, look at a lineup with Trey Young, Lou Williams and Danilo Gallinari all on the court at the same time. And you can't take advantage of that or you just refuse to. And it just makes it laughable that one of the main guys who should know what that is like firsthand, Doc Rivers, has the opportunity to do it and he doesn't do it and they lose the series. And it's all blamed on Ben Simmons then at that point, which even even if Doc Rivers coached the same exact series again and Ben Simmons just was more aggressive, you know, that the Ben Simmons problem was fixed and he played well that series or whatever. Yeah, they probably would have won. But it shouldn't come down to that, is my point. It shouldn't come down to whether or not Ben Simmons had a terrible series or not. Like, you shouldn't allow a playoff team to field that kind of lineup in a playoff series, and especially in a game seven. And they just go completely unpunished for it. Like, there's so many possessions where it was like neither Lou Williams or Trey Young were ever involved in the play defensively because they were guarding somebody off ball who never got the ball. You know, there never was a screen set to get them switched onto somebody that was a score. You know, none of that ever happened. And even during that series, another thing that was making me mad was like the Hawks were literally doing the thing that I was saying that the Sixers should do, target some defensive liabilities. The Hawks were doing that to the Sixers. They're targeting Seth Curry, who is a much better defender than both Lou Williams and uh, Trey Young, who are both guys that like Lou Williams has proven multiple times, not just a couple years ago in that Clippers series, multiple times in the playoffs that he is unplayable on the defensive end. Trey Young is probably even worse than Lou Williams. Danilo Gallinari is like 35 and can't move. Seth Curry is a better defender, I think, than all three of those guys. His thing is that he's just undersized. He's way too small um, to be like a high level defender or even like a positive defender for the most part in certain contexts, like when he's guarding a 6'7 guy like Kevin Herter, which is what they kept doing. They kept getting Seth Curry switched on to either Bogdanovich or Herter, and Bogdanovich and Herter were literally posting him up in the mid-range, the high post, like, and getting turnaround shots on him. Like, they were going to that in a game seven. And Doc Rivers won't target Trey Young. Just made me mad. It shouldn't have happened. Like, yes, the Hawks were a lot better than I was expecting them to be, but they have a defensive weakness a huge hole in their defense that should have prevented them from being very successful in the playoffs. And it just didn't. They got all the way to the conference finals. It never came up. It never became a problem. That's my Hawks thing, I guess, is I don't think they were as good as they ultimately performed last season. Like they are not one of the four best teams in the league, you know, because they ended up in the top four. I think that's kind of showing up this year is part of the reason why they're not super successful. But I think overall, the biggest reason is because the thing that they were relying on on their defense being passable last year was Clint Capella at the rim. And this year, Clint Capella has just not been the same guy at the rim for whatever reason. And that's the big thing. That's why they're one of the worst teams in the league defensively this year. And that's why they're probably not going to hit their over. So that was my thing with the Hawks, I guess. I'll be done with them. So other teams, we got the Hornets. Their over-under was 37 and a half wins. I went over on them. Jacob used a stay away and Anthony went under. 
They're currently on pace to win 45 wins, so looking pretty good to hit that over. Uh, I think I'm going to win that one. Yeah, not, I'm not going to spend too much time on any of these other teams because I did so much on the Hawks. So I like James Brego as a head coach with the Hornets. Lamelo's fun. Miles Bridges is fun. Not much else I'm going to say. Long term, they probably want to find a nice center to pair with Lamelo. I haven't watched a lot of Hornets this season. Like I said before, I haven't watched any of these teams very much in the Southeast. I guess just not super interested in them, but it probably goes both ways. Like I'm not interested in them because I'm not watching them, but also I'm not watching them because I'm not interested in them. It's probably a little bit of both, but yeah, that's my thing with Charlotte, I guess. Miami's looking really good. Uh, they're on track to hit their over. They're on pace for 52 wins and their over under line was 48 and a half. I went under which seems odd, but Jacob went under also, Anthony went over. I think I went under with them just because I was going over on a lot of other teams and I was a little shaky on the over for Miami, which I do remember. So yeah, I think what convinced me to choose under was the fact that I was choosing over on a lot of other teams. If I could do this over, obviously I'd switch around Atlanta and Miami. This season, the reason why they're doing pretty well is like even though they're having so many injuries, which is the reason why I was like, I'm gonna take the unders because They've struggled the past few years in the regular season with injuries and stuff like that. I'm a little scared of it. And they have been struggling with that a lot this season. But the thing is, the Heat, like system, Spolster is just so good with those bench units, especially with a point guard like Kyle Lowry now, who is kind of like a Chris Paul in terms of a floor raiser. Um, he's in that same like class, I guess, not to the same level, I guess. You know, Chris Paul's, you probably rank him higher than Kyle Lowry in that department, but Kyle Lowry is one of the few guys in the league that is like a floor general that's going to take any four guys out there on the court. And if, as long as those four guys are buying into a role, he can make a very competent product on the court. And so what they've been doing is they've been running Kyle Lowry in those bench lineups in the second unit. Um, because one of the things that was scaring me with Miami also is the fact that with uh, that Kyle Lowry trade, they got a little less deep. They got a little more shallow in terms of their rotation. If so, if they had to miss Jimmy or Bam or Kyle Lowry for a long stretch, they didn't have a lot of guys on the bench unit that I thought were going to be very valuable or be, be able to really you know keep them above water. Like Dwayne Dedman, I didn't love him as backup center at this point in his career. And like Gabe Vincent, I didn't see really as this much of an impact player. Max Drews kind of came out of nowhere. I mean, I saw him play last year, but I don't think he played near as much. And then uh, somebody else. Yeah, Caleb Martin. I believe it's Caleb. One of the Martin twins is on the Heat, and he's been playing really well. Been a lot better shooter than he was previously in his career. So running the lineup with that and the, as the second unit with Kyle Lowry has been good because all those guys can shoot for the most part. Yeah, all of them can shoot. Struess is a very good shooter. Dwayne Dedman's a you know floor spacing big. So Kyle Lowry's been using Dwayne Dedman in the pick and roll a lot, like how he played with Sergi Baca back in Toronto for that championship run. It looks kind of like very similar stylistically to that with Dedman as kind of like a mid range pop guy a lot. Their bench unit is just looking really good really solid because of Kyle Lowry you know in the starting lineup they got PJ Tucker as a really good you know switchable defender still at this point even though he's getting up there in years and then Bam Adebayo Jim Butler two other of the best you know switchable defenders in the league Kyle Lowry Tyler Hero has broken out as a great scorer off the bench. So even though Kyle Lowry starts the games, they stagger the minutes to where Kyle Lowry is in the bench lineups with those other bench guys. And Tyler Hero kind of takes Kyle Lowry's place in the starting lineup for the rest of those minutes throughout the game. I believe up until crunch time, I think they switch it back. But yeah, it's just great coaching from Spo, uh, handling these lineups, handling these rotations, even with all their guys that's been in and out. Duncan Robinson is the guy I forgot to mention in the starting lineup. And he's been on a shooting slump lately, which also I, th I thought was funny just looking at the team 
stats. Bam Adebayo's assist numbers are way farther down this year than they were last year and the year before, uh, which like popped out to me at first. But then I, I put together like how Bam plays on the court. He's in a two-man game a lot with Duncan Robinson. They run that sequence a lot with DHO, like, you know, dribble handoffs and pick and roll type stuff. And so the vast majority of Bam's assists probably do go to Duncan Robinson. And the fact that Duncan Robinson is like 10 percentage points lower in three-point percentage than he probably should be at right now probably has a big part to play in Bam's assists being down. Also the fact of adding, you know, more of an on-ball initiator type of point guard in Kyle Lowry probably, you know, Bam's role has changed a little bit. But if we see Duncan Robinson knocking down more of his shots as the season goes along, I think you'll see Bam Adebayo's assists go up as a direct result. So yeah, that's my thing with the the Heat, I guess. Like they're the other most interesting team in this division for sure. So, you know, I think they deserved that little spiel that I gave them. But yeah, I, th- I would change it to over probably my pick, um, but it could be either way right now. You know, they'd have to win 49 games to hit the over and they're on pace to win 52. So who knows? I'd probably take the over though. So now on to the cross-state rivals of Miami, uh, the Orlando Magic. Uh, we all chose under for them on a 22 and a half win line. Not much to say about them other than Franz Wagner has been a really good rookie this year. He's in the running for rookie of the year, honestly, um, up there with Evan Mobley. Just been a very, very switchable defender, good shooter, um, good feel for the game, all those things. The reason I, I kind of liked him in the draft, honestly, um, I thought the the Warriors should have taken him, take him at the sixth pick uh, or seventh pick, right? Yeah, seventh. Anyways, uh, Jalen Suggs, he's been out. I don't know if he's come back yet, to be honest, but he he's he was out for a long time, at least, missing a lot of his rookie season. And in the games that he has played this season, he's been not good at all. And he was one of the guys I really liked coming into the draft. One of the main comparisons I really saw with him uh, personally, like the one that came to mind a lot when I watched him play at Gonzaga was Chauncey Billups. And, you know, Chauncey Billups had a similar start to his career in Boston. You know, he was pretty highly touted coming into the draft, coming into the league, but he started off in his career very poorly and he didn't really put it together until like fifth or sixth season, honestly. And then he became finals MVP in Detroit. So yeah, I don't know if Suggs is going to have the same exact career to him, but it just, it, it makes me even more reminiscent of Billups' career now that Suggs is having a similar start to his career, if that makes sense. Like stylistically speaking and watching him in college, I saw a lot of similarities to Chauncey Billups being the defensive point guard, floor general type. But then, you know, early on in in his NBA career, having a similar start just makes it, you know, all the more of a kind of eerily similar comparison. But yeah, so I still believe in Jalen Suggs. I think he'll turn out to be a good NBA player. I think really what it is right now is he needs to adapt to like the speed and athleticism um, and size really of this league. Once he puts that together he's just such a smart basketball player that i just wouldn't bet against him you know so yeah that's my thing with the magic now on to the washington wizards the final team in the southeast division so their over under line was 34 and a half wins and we all chose under on them which i think they'll probably surpass that they're looking like they're gonna win 43 wins this season if they keep the same pace they start off the season really well and something that i think i said in the video that you just watched with us three you know talking about this before the season something i said about them was that they're really deep you know i said like they're a great value version of the Hawks or something, which I think I think has, has aged really well because they just have so many rotation guys. They have so many rotation players. They don't really have a star player, though. That's kind of been their their Achilles heel, I guess, so far this season with Bradley Beal having an off year for his standards and them just not really having that that top end. But they've been a team that can stay competitive with really anybody. So, And I credit a lot of that also to their new head coach and uh, Wes Unsell Jr., who was uh, assistant in Denver for a long time. So yeah, I think he's he's doing a great job there. And yeah, Washington might hit their over. 
So that's really it with Washington for me. Other than Denny Avdia, one guy that I like from the draft last year a lot, he didn't have a great rookie season, but he's doing a lot better in his second year in the league. Happy to see that. But yeah, I also just wanted to run through a couple teams that uh, I've already done in this series because something, you know, things have happened with them that they kind of deserve an update. First one, the reason, like, this is the team that kind of gave me that idea to begin with that I need to revisit um, was the Pacers because right after I did the episode, last episode with the Pacers, like the day or two after I put that up, they announced that they were selling, you know, like they were rebuilding, they were entering a rebuilding phase, they were going to sell off any other parts that people were willing to buy, basically, like DeMontis Sabonis, Miles Turner, Karis LeVert, uh, TJ Warren, you know, any of those guys, I guess. So that's that sends them in a very different direction than where they were at, because we all chose over on them for a 42 and a half win line, um, but they're on pace now to win 29, so a lot less. Rick Carlisle's kind of disappointed, I think, as the head coach there. I don't think he gelled with his personnel as well as I thought he would with, you know, just the way he's been using Demontis Bonus there and stuff like that. I think I talked about some of this in the last episode, so I'm not going to go over that. Yeah, just thought I would mention Pacers probably not going to hit their over and they're entering rebuilding stage. So next team, the Milwaukee Bucks. Last time I talked about them, they were having a very bad season. Now they're doing a lot better. They're on pace to win 50 games. I think they're only going to go up as the season goes along for the most part um, because they're still dominating when they have their guys. Because I, like I mentioned in the last episode that I had, I talked about them in, I put up a graphic on screen if you're watching the video version that had like a stat that I found while recording or while editing rather uh, that said something along the lines of like nine games. And, and the nine games that Chris Middleton, Drew Holiday, and Giannis Antetokounmpo had played together at that point, they were undefeated. So they're 9-0. And that trend has continued. Uh, they're performing really, really well when they have all their guys. And so that's really been their key because they're not super deep. So when they've been missing some of those guys, they've been playing very poorly, obviously. So yeah, that's the thing with the Bucks. Nets added Kyrie and he's been playing well. He's part-time player. He's going to be playing on the road only. That's interesting. Uh, the Sixers, they started off hot. They fell kind of flat, but they're they're getting back up there now. They've kind of gone in some spurts of like winning a lot of games, losing a lot of games, like kind of going back and forth. They're on pace to win 47 games right now, which they're over under is 50 and a half. So they're getting back up there. And then, yeah, I was going to mention the Cavs also, because originally when I was planning on doing this episode, I wanted to mention the Cavs again, do like a revisit of them talking about Mobley and stuff and how excited I still am for the Cavs. But then Ricky Rubio tore his ACL. So that really sucks, especially since this is a contract year for him. Ricky Rubio has always been one of my guys, like I've noted earlier on this podcast so yeah it really sucks to see that i thought rajon rondo getting him in that trade with the lakers i thought that was the perfect move you know as far as trying to make up for that losing ricky rubio i thought that was like the perfect piece to add to try to fill that role obviously it's going to be a downgrade because ricky rubio is having like the best season of his career it just really sucks to see also had one of the best games of his career in that game that he tore his acl in. he had like 27 and 13 or something so that really sucked to see never want to see that Hopefully he gets signed somewhere in a good situation once he comes back, you know, whether it's with the Cavs or not. But yeah, the Cavs still definitely going to hit their over. They're one of my locks for this year. Their over-under line was 27 and a half wins, which I still can't believe. I locked the over on them. They're on pace for 47 wins right now. A couple weeks ago, they were on pace for 50. So yeah, I think they're going to definitely get 27 because they're at 24 right now, just for context. So they only need four more games to pass 27 and a half. So I think they'll definitely get there. But yeah, that should be it for this episode though. I wanted to run through this quickly, make something that's easily editable and put outable, you know, because that's the big part of this. When I sit down and do like a whole recording session, that's just way too choppy and way too 
tough to edit, then I never get around to it. So try to make something really quick, easy to edit, easy to kind of just do minimal stuff on to put it out because this is a podcast after all. So yeah, thank you guys for listening or watching whatever you did. And I'll talk to you guys next episode when we go over the um, Pacific Division finally because I've been wanting to get to the West really bad. But yeah, so we'll be talking about Pacific Division, which is the Golden State Warriors, the LA Clippers, the LA Lakers, the Phoenix Suns, and the Sacramento Kings. But yeah, I'll see you then.